0: This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Join us in exploring a new narrative of the American Revolutionary War from the eyes of hired German soldiers known as Hessians. On this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Frederica Baer about her book, Hessians, German Soldiers in the American Revolutionary War. We'll explore the untold stories of the Hessians and the profound impact they had in the American Revolution. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. We're very excited to be today to be joined by Frederica Baer, who is the Associate Professor of History and the Division Head for Arts and Humanities at Pennsylvania State University's Abington College. Um, she holds a Ph.D. in early American history from Brown, and today we're going to be talking with her all about her new book, Hessians. German soldiers in the American Revolutionary War, um, which is a fascinating topic, one um, that's near and dear here to me, recording out of Frederick, Maryland, where we have a Hessian barracks and what does that mean and um, how is this uh, this story borne out on the landscape even to this day. But we'll dive into all that here today with Frederica. And, um, but first and foremost, I think people are always fascinated to get to know our guests. So. Where'd you grow up and what led you to working as a historian and a writer? How did all of this kind of come together?
1: Yes. Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk about uh, the Hessians. Um, I grew up in Germany. Um, I uh, was born near the French border in Germany, but I grew up in West Berlin, what was then West, West Berlin and um started uh, went to america right after high school for a little bit then went back to germany and started college in uh, at the university of göttingen and i did i although i've always liked history i did not start out as a history major um i was in, i was uh, studying english uh, i wanted to study art i had very different interests um and then um one semester i took a undergraduate seminar in early american history that really basically entailed close readings of um, important, what people would consider important primary documents related to, to early America. Uh, things like the Mayflower Compact or um, uh, uh, Joseph Francois Laviteau's um, records related to uh, Canada and Native Americans in the 18th century. And I really enjoyed that class. And I basically just discovered that close reading of historical records, primary records, um, was really just fun for me to do, but also something that I could envision myself doing um, or, you know, as part of my career after college. So I switched my major to history. And then at some point, I transferred to an American college. I went to Boston College and then decided to get a PhD in early American history at Brown University. Um, but it was basically this one class with, looking back, I, I think a really ins- inspiring and inspired uh, professor who turned me on to early American history.
0: Uh, it's it's so interesting how like, these primary source documents can really get people excited. And obviously, mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about how you use primary source. And this, I, I love this dovetail between your German background and the Hessians and being able to kind of use that familiarity, obviously, with the language and right. an understanding of where they came from. To kind of explore something that happened in American history. I just think that that's a really cool way of kind of pulling all those different threads of your life together Mm -hmm. um, in a way that, you know, first for an American without a real deep understanding of German history would probably in the German landscape and the German language would be a very difficult thing to do. And obviously it has been difficult because people have written about it, but not at the level that you have.
1: Yes. so
0: for people who are I mean, I'm interested. So early American history, what was your your dissertation? What did you kind of explore early? Was it always the Hessians or was it a different no. <laughs> part of American history?
1: Uh, so uh, it, when I think back, you know, uh, when when my interest in the, in the Hessians started uh, and that's actually started relatively early on, I actually have a book from my childhood. It is sort of a fictional uh, uh, account of a boy who signs up as a, a kind of a drummer boy. So I was maybe 12 years old when I got that book. I don't have honestly memory of reading it back then, but apparently, I was exposed to these stories early on. Now I come from a part of Germany that did not send germ- uh, soldiers to to North America, so it wasn't really part of my education really in Germany. Uh, uh, generally, I didn't really learn more about it once I came to America, and it was I wrote an undergraduate thesis actually on the. What we know is the Convention Army, uh, specifically the German troops that were captured at Saratoga in 77, and then spent years as prisoners of war in Massachusetts and then in Virginia. Many, of course, ended up in Frederick, Maryland as well. So as an undergrad, I was interested in it. Then I moved to other topics. My dissertation was on um, German Americans, the German community in Pennsylvania after the American Revolution, so still related to Germans in America, but sure. really not concerned with the Hessians, not concerned with the Revolutionary War. It was more about um, their community, their the church, education, sort of their key institutions. Um, then, uh, but I do remember when I when I was looking at graduate programs and I was talking to uh, professors who I thought I'd work with that um, my uh, who ended up my being my advisor, Gordon Wood. When I first met with him, before I even went to grad school, he said to me, you speak German, you know German, you should use that. There are so many records related to early American history that are in German. And that kind of always stuck with me. And he was absolutely right. Um, So my dissertation was about something slightly different. My first book was about something different. So it was only um, uh, after a while of doing different projects that I decided to return to the Hessians.
0: It's really cool. And I also like that you just dropped on everyone that you studied under like a luminary of uh, American historiography. Just just by the way, Gordon Wood. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, so. So obviously, we kind of we're picking up the threads of how you get to the Hessians. Um, when did you make the decision? And then we'll talk about it because not everyone probably knows what they are. Um, or who they are, but how did you get to? You know, did you come stumble across some type of primary source that you're like, I just have to, I have to pick this apart. How did you kind of make the decision to start writing about them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I yeah, when I set out, uh, when I re- thought you know I want to return to this, um, I actually started out with a, having a fairly narrow focus. What I was interested in is writing, researching, and writing about. Um, a woman. Her name is Federica Wiedesel. She was the wife of the commander of the Braunschweig troops that were in Canada, and then uh, many of them, including her, were captured at Saratoga. She wrote uh, an account. Some some of your your listeners might might know this. She wrote an account after return to Germany after the war about her experiences that were published in 1800, and that became quite popular in Germany. It's the only known published account by a woman that accompanied the German corps to America. And um, her memoirs have been translated. It's a great translation available. Um, and I was interested in learning more about doing more with this book. And um, once I set out on this, I discovered basically, well, there's, there's so much more out there and there are so many questions that I couldn't find answers to. Like really, who were these Germans? Why did Britain hire them? How did they get here? What did they think of the american land the people the war native americans did they write about slavery i mean there were all these questions and ultimately i discovered there really there is some good scholarship on different pieces of that but there really isn't a more comprehensive study that i th- addressed these kind of questions that i had that's basically when i very quickly decided you know what this is going to be a bigger book it's not just going to be about the Braunschweiger troops, not just going to be about this woman or her family. She came here with three daughters. It's going to be about the German auxiliary troops collectively.
0: Well, it's it like all good things, it starts with a bunch of questions, right? Like, and so um and so let's take a step back for people listening who maybe aren't familiar with it or they're from a part of the country where they haven't heard about them or part of the world where they haven't heard of them. So in the context of the American Revolution, the colonies are rebelling against um, their um, British, um, you know, the the, the colonial overlords. Um, and so, what is what is the context here, and what what ends up happening? Who are these Hessians? Um, kind of paint the picture um, to kind of explain the context of all of this. Uh,
1: um, so uh, the Revolutionary War breaks out in of, of, uh, as you know, in spring of 75, um, you know, conquered Lexington, Bunker Hill, those early battles. And it becomes, it's very clear to the, these are the commanders who are in North America at the time, at the time Boston was the British headquarters, that the, the Britain needed more troops in the colonies if they wanted to put down this rebellion. Um, Some estimated maybe 20,000. So very early on, uh, the king is looked around, you know, basically considered how we can, how can we send more men to America? For various reasons, he did not think he could raise those troops necessarily in England. He also didn't think there would be enough um, men that could be raised in other parts of the empire, including maybe loyalists um, or uh, Irish. Uh, so he looked to foreign nations for help. This, and I want to emphasize this, this was nothing unusual. Um, quite a few European powers, you, you routinely hired foreign armies to help protect their interests and uh, fight their wars. So the king actually first turned to Russia. Russia turned him down. Um, he then tried to recall a, what is called the Scots Brigade that was in the Netherlands at the time. That didn't work out. And he then started. Uh, he sent an emissary to the German territories. Um, by that time, this is fall, late 75, some German territories had already offered troops. They had already heard, oh, the king's going to need some soldiers. And we've supplied them as troops before. We're going to offer them our uh, parts of our military. The basic transaction was, we offer you troops for whatever purpose you pay us money. <laughs> it's a it's a contract. It's who gets
0: choose. the who actually gets the money? I've always been curious about it. So is it the is it the 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 the, the, the state the print the German because at this point there's no German unification. So these are many different little states of Germany or principalities. And so it's the 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 person in charge of the the, the baron of that place gets the money, and then in theory the soldiers get paid as well.
1: Absolutely. So no, that's that's uh, important. So the subsidy treaty stipulated that there is a set dollar amount per year, depending on number of troops and so forth, that would be set to that would be paid by Britain to the territory. And you're absolutely right. So let's say in the case of Braunschweig, the Duke of Braunschweig would get that money. (laughs) Um, Now the troops were also paid, and in fact, the soldiers that were recruited were paid at the same level as uh, British troops, which was decent pay for the time. So the soldiers did not do this for, for free they were paid wages and they were also often uh, paid some kind of bounty that helped of course in recruiting these men um so they got their individual pay but the rulers also got subsidy payments and they used those for personal expenses that, that of course got them there was a lot of criticism of that but they also used it for public works projects paying down debt you know, uh, uh, building hospitals or schools or villages or bridges or or whatever. Um, But it was a transaction, essentially. It was kind of a deal between two rulers to hire out
0: armies. And what is the scale of it? So uh, is it, you know, in terms of the scale of the crown's forces engaged, what are we talking about in terms of the numbers of Hessians who actually fought?
1: That's a great question. So we, we, we used use the number of 30,000 uh, German troops went to America. Um, I think though those estimates go back to basically to the war when, when contemporaries tried to kind of add up, you know, different shipments and transports. Um, some historians have argued the number was probably higher the numbers also don't include women and children and there were hundreds of them and it's important to remember that these armies they include a lot of civilians as well that number um they came from six territories ultimately the majority came from the two territories of Hessen and Hessen hano and that's why we collectively refer to them as hessians there were maybe there were at least 20,000 or so really hessians and then there were maybe Twelve hundred or so from the small territory of what valdeck so it's a it's a it's a very diverse group of individuals. By seventeen eighty one or so, they make up about one third of the British regular army strength in North America. So that is not it's not just you know a minor contribution to the to the to this war. It's one third of the regular. British Army fourth force in North America.
0: Yeah, I thought I don't I don't think people completely appreciate that. And I think that's one of the really important things about your book. And we'll put a link for everybody who's listening in the show notes to the book. It would make a great uh Great holiday present for uh, for somebody. Uh, perfect timing for this. And and I mean, really, for somebody who's interested in the American Revolution and looking at diving into a different aspect of it that they haven't explored before, sort of eye opening. And like when you throw that number out, you know, I think some people think, oh, yeah, there were some Germans who fought, too. And you're talking about a third of the army. Um, and and so you know, spoiler alert for people who don't know, the, the British do not win the war. Um, but but so what impact did they have? Did they keep the British from losing sooner? Did they if if it had been an all Hessian army, would they have won? Was it what what impact? I mean, and this is you kind of, I guess, some subject subject subjectivity here. But like, what impact did they have on the war?
1: Yeah, I. As you just suggested, I, I do think that uh, the availability of these foreign troops does prevent um, uh, the, uh, you know, a, a, the end of the war in its early stages. I think, and other historians have argued too, that it gives Britain a kind of a fighting chance that they have this supply of, of troops available. So that's, I think, a major contribution. <laughs> um you, German troops participated in a, in every major battle. Sometimes they're as many as half the British troops um, in an, in any given battle or campaign. They participated in in many many um, less significant military encounters or skirmishes. So um, it's hard to tell in, in each individual case what their their contribution was. But it's very it's very clear that that they they had an impact on the outcome of these individual encounters one way or the other. Um, I would also say that Britain's decision to use them gave American, quote-unquote, what we call patriots an opportunity to, or gave them an an excellent propaganda tool, essentially. Because even before the first Germans set foot on American soil, the Americans were using Britain's use of these mercenaries, you know, to... Yeah. yeah, hirelings to plunder their their homes and destroy their villages, you know, against their own subjects. Britain is using this against their own subject. Um, they use that as sort of a tool to rile up resistance, to to um so, to um to get support for independence in in the spring of 76. So it is in that regard comes as a welcome um well again, like a, a propaganda tool. Um and then in terms of contributions, these, these Germans, they, they had created a huge volume of records, um, private and public, uh, official and personal, some of which was published during the war in German-speaking Europe. So I would also say that these German, the, the participation of these Germans in this war, uh, uh, first of all, almost overnight increased interest in the war in Europe. Because suddenly this remote thing that's happening. We don't even know what the cause is involving all these Germans. So there's more interest. But then these these soldiers and civilians, they act almost in some ways like foreign correspondents. You know, they are published, they're writing, they're sending things home that are meant to be published or circulated. So it increases knowledge of North America generally and the war specifically in German speaking Europe. So is that my because...
0: it's also contribution. Yeah. Is that because they were more do you have a sense that they were more literate than the British line?
1: Well, that's so I should, of course, I, I should probably mention that the the majority, the vast majority. And I think that's not unique here to this particular military. The vast majority of the written records that we have were created by officers. Right. Um, we do have some we have. Uh, a handful of, of diaries and letters that are written by privates, They're, they tend to be rare. Um, so when we are talking about impressions of America by these Germans, the, the, the bulk of the records that we have to, to have to, to shed light on this are written by, by, by officers.
0: Well, why don't we take a quick break, come back, talk about the impact that they left on the country and and that we even still feel to this day. And then talk about the process of writing this and maybe any any surprises that came along the way. Um, And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service’s Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAB and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We are thrilled to be joined today by Frederica Baer who again is the Associate Professor of History and the Division Head for Arts and Humanities at the Pennsylvania State University at Abington College. Um, we're talking all about her book, um, Hessians, German Soldiers in the American Revolutionary War, and really kind of getting a deep dive into this this somewhat, um, uh, you know, not untold, but perhaps uh, misunderstood aspect of the American Revolution. And as America begins to think about the 250th anniversary, important to think about all these diverse stories that come out of the revolution. So, you know, we talked about the impact that they had. Third of the British Army at some points, you know, engaged in almost every major battle, um, engaging, you know, a European audience in the story of what's happening here in the colonies. So we know about the impact that they had, but I always find it fascinating, the impact that they had sort of after the war. So not all of them go back. Some figure out a way to stay. Um, And I know that there has been research here in Frederick, Maryland, about the descendants of Hessians, um, because we still have quite a few of those. What 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 happens to them after the war? I mean, obviously, for a a group so big, there's going to be as many stories as there are people. But but on a large scale, what are the trends that we see in terms of these these Hessians after the war?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, and yeah, there are, there are communities and organizations, uh, out today that are dedicated to researching, uh, the, the, you know, has Hessian ancestry and, and what happened and, and so forth. So it's a fascinating topic. I, my book doesn't really go much into that. I think that would have been volume two of my book, which is already a big book. Um, But uh, I do I do want to mention. So one thing that I hear when I often when people talk to me like, oh, yeah, the Hessians didn't like many of them immediately desert and stay in America. um, It wasn't quite like that. Uh, So uh, to give just to give some quick numbers um, of the let's say we started with 30,000 troops, an estimated 23,000 survived the war. Um, the ones that died, the vast majority died of disease or an ax- of, of accidents, which is very typical for 18th century armies. We think that maybe 1,200 or so actually died in battle, so we have maybe five or six thousand. So of those 23,000, the vast majority went back to Germany. 17,000 they sailed back over the course of the war, or do about ev- evacuation in '83. And by the way, they take with them some Americans, um, including at least 200 black men, women, and children who took the opportunity to go to Europe and not instead of staying in America. Um, those we have about maybe five or 6,000 that remain in America, maybe half of them actually go to Canada. Can, Britain offered land grants to uh, uh, German soldiers who wanted to settle in places like Quebec and Nova Scotia and other provinces. And about half of, uh, of, of these survivors that decided to stay took up these, uh, this opportunity. Um, the, but then, yeah, maybe 2,500, 3,000 did settle in in British North, in what is then the United States, of course. It looks like from, from the records that we have, much of it anecdotal. Um, people, for obvious reasons, tended to kind of disappear into their communities. Um, it looks like they tended to settle in areas that were heavily German-American or sometimes it's the same basically where they had been imprisoned for extended periods of time frederick maryland is an, is one example but also lancaster pennsylvania for example we have soldiers that spent in some cases years in captivity uh in these areas um in for german prisoner of war captivity often meant they got to hire themselves out. They worked on local farms. They got to lo- meet locals. Maybe they met a woman. Maybe they got married. In other words, they really they really started feeling at home after a while. Well, and so there's these-
0: also it sort of checks both of those places, check both boxes that you said, you know, in prison for a long time and and local Germanic population. Exactly. So L- Lancaster and Frederick both check both of those boxes.
1: Exactly. And there is some speculation that when the Americans decided where to establish these large prison of war camps, they chose these regions for for that the regions for that reason. In other words, they were hoping that local German Americans might potentially entice these prisoners to desert. So uh that's not a coincidence that these, these locations were selected. So yeah, I think they, you know, got there maybe these people learned some english while they were there uh, although they could probably get around with german and they were more likely especially in 1783 when they were recalled to new york in preparation for evacuation we know that several hundred of them never made it back they decided you know what i'm going to i'm going to stick around i'm going to stay here this is an opportunity for me for a new life and a new start so
0: in the process of writing this um I would imagine most of the materials you're using are, um, at least the, the, the German materials you had to translate yourself. What, talk to us about the German language that you were translating. Is it a German that you were familiar with, or is it a different type of German?
1: Well, uh, the, 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 the language is a language I'm familiar with. The script is something that's, uh, no, that hasn't been used in use in about a century or so. Uh, in Germany. So that's, I think that is one challenge, uh, for, um, people who would like to research this. So knowing German, of course, is a great advantage, but if you want to use primary sources, manuscript records, you also have to be able to read the script. Um, and that script looks very different from a modern script that, that we are are using in English and we're using in German today. Um, so, uh, uh, so the, the script is, is, is a little bit of a barrier. So, but once you, you master that, the language itself, I mean, it's 18th century, of course, it's not exactly like today, but it is the German we know today. And it's, um, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's not that difficult to understand once you can decipher the Latin
0: script. So where does the research take you? I mean, did you have to go back to, not that it's tough duty for a, a native German to go back to Back to Germany, but did you have to go back to Germany to do most of the research? So most of it's held in, in repositories there.
1: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, and I think, I mean, there, like I already suggested early on, there is really, I, I did not know this when I started out this project, how much material there is and how much material there is that has never been translated, not been published, and also probably not really been looked at by researchers. It's it's a huge volume. It is a lot of it is German and created by German officials and soldiers and members of the corps and other people that are involved somehow in all of this. But there's also French records. There's British, obviously, and American records. So it's a it's a a, a, a huge amount of, of stuff. I was mostly interested in the German perspective. How did the Germans write about it, the war and all of that? So the bulk of the records that I found especially helpful is in Hessian Hessian State Archives, for example, university archives, and then in in regional archives, in Braunschweig, in in anhalt Serbs in different uh, uh, manuscript collections, also in Prussian archives, because some of the officials deposited their papers there. The Library of Congress in America also have records. Um, uh, The Clements Library at the University of Michigan has a large collection, a famous collection, of private material, letters written to an official in, in Europe. So, there is great stuff in America, but I had I spent uh, many many weeks in archives in Germany as well.
0: And biggest surprise was there any like big surprises that came out of the research? Things that you just really didn't expect to find, or an aspect of the story that really kind of I don't know, shock is a bit is a too strong a word, but things that you just really didn't expect to find.
1: Well. Um, I think for me it was full of surprises but I wanna I wanted two things I wanna uh, very quickly one is that from from the from the beginning of this stay in North America that all of the German reg- regiments actively recruited black men in particular as drummers uh especially as musicians and really looking back now it's not really that surprising because having black musicians in the military, is something in Euro- that was considered to be prestigious in European armies at the time. So, for these German regiments, once they're in America, I think they realized pretty quickly that it's an opportunity to recruit uh, black men, in particular, to fill the the these you know these roles as drummers. Dress them up really nicely with feathers, so what Europeans would consider to be exotic outfits. And that lent prestige to units. So that's something I, I did not expect, but I found a lot of evidence for that. The other, the other mm, surprise, maybe is a little strong, but the other story that I, I have a whole chapter on this is the role of the Germans in West Florida um, when, when most, you know, from my perspective, when I, when I, most books on the Revolutionary War. Many books end with Yorktown, essentially, right? 1781, the last big battle, war is basically over. And I do really remind myself when I was writing this book and doing this research that the war is not over for the people that are in it. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> I mean, they're still prisoners of war, they're still occupying Charleston, they're still occupying Savannah, then Canada, then New York. There's still minor military encounters, and there are also you know, involved in West Florida, so we have a uh, one whole regiment that that essentially uh, that is sent to West Florida, to Pensacola, and fights in the Revolutionary War, except for their fight against the Spanish. And that is an experience or or, or um, something that I I didn't I didn't really know honestly when I set out on this project.
0: Yeah, I don't think most people kind of connect those dots. Um, between the Revolution in Florida and and that sort of thing. Well, it's it's fascinating to sit down and talk with you, and we'd love to have you come to Frederick and take a look at the the Hessian barracks here. So, what what's next? What what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I uh, there's a there is a, there's a lot of material that didn't make it into the book. So I'm kind of going through this now, kind of trying to think of this particular topic or theme or you know that I can use to. speak been into something bigger um so that's one one focus but i've i i i have a lot of different interests i might also revisit a topic that i worked on uh before this book project and that is a murder try that took place in pennsylvania after the civil war i published on this already so very different i might just venture into the late 19th century for a little bit um I've, i have a lot of ideas trying to figure out
0: back back to the future for a little bit. So um, before we go, we love to ask people, it's a challenging question for people who love history. Do you have a favorite historic place or site?
1: Oh, yeah, that is, oh, that is very challenging. Um, uh, Any place, you know, any place where you can really uh, imagine, that allows you to imagine what it was like for someone to walk down those halls or into that room or down this path is fascinating to me.
0: So we'll give you we'll give you a we'll give you an out here. What was what was your favorite historic place you've most recently visited?
1: Oh well, okay. So my most re- the re- most recent historic so- place was actually. Saratoga the the national park Saratoga which was amazing uh and you know it's just fields basically um but I I walked through them and they did a wonderful job doing like sort of an audio tour. as so you can really imagine this is where this line was and this line was so that was a great experience if you haven't been to Saratoga national park the battlefield it's worth a vi- visit I am actually this weekend going to for the first time to Yorktown Uh, I'm going to a conference down there and I'm hoping to visit Yorktown. So I I hope I I would expect this also to be a great experience.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you here today and talk with you about this, particularly as we sort of gear up over the next several years towards America 250 and start thinking about different stories that need to be told and elevated and, and um, the diversity of experiences of the American Revolution. And I think your book um, definitely sets a standard on that. So we'll put links in the show notes for people to pick that up. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland. and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving!